there are outlines on the table out there. If you haven't grabbed one for this morning, we're looking at uh, Discipline One, Shepherding My Heart with the Promises of God. And thank you so much for being here this morning. I know it's busy time of year as we enter into December, which is just wild to think about that we're in December already. And this is also our last meeting of 2022. We'll be off for about a month and then we'll pick back up in January, which will be great uh, to, to step back in. But it's hard to believe that we've already got a, a semester behind us. And, uh, and yet it's encouraging to think about the ground that we've covered and the the topics that we've looked at and just the time that we've been able to to be together is is really a gift from the Lord. So a, a couple things, um, we're going to have our, our session in here like we usually would, but they are decorating and some of us I know are going to be helping decorate after EQ this morning. And um, I think the woman who's heading it up is going to be here probably around eight to, to kind of organize and do some pre- work and so we'll need to do our our groups in one of the classrooms um so the youth room or, or something like that so and i don't think karis can be here this morning and julie is with elijah at a robotics competition and so we'll just have i think is it is the plan just one group and one group together afterwards so um probably either it'll probably be easier to move out of here and let her just do her thing and find another spot on campus so all right, uh, let's open in prayer, and we will dive in for this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity yet again another week to be together, and Lord, uh, it is especially sweet to be together centered around your word and what you have revealed, your instruction that you have given to us to, to both know you, know about you, know your desires for us, and Lord, I pray that this morning would just be a, a fruitful endeavor and time spent for your purposes in our lives, that you would make us um, more useful vessels for you, that you would increase uh, both our holiness and, um, and our usefulness as a result of, of what we cover this morning. Thank you for these women who get up early and make sacrifices and plans and arrangements to be able to be here. And Lord, uh, just pray that you would uh, bless those sacrifices through increased love and joy and peace and knowledge of you that would um, just bring glory to you. Pray for those who aren't able to be here this morning, that you'd be with them and encouraging and strengthening them as they have various obligations and, and things going on. And Lord, just even thinking particularly about the various illnesses going through families right now. I know it's just so many and even several families experiencing several rounds of sickness and having to navigate those things. They can just wear on a heart and wear on one's mind and disposition of contentment and joy. Lord, I pray that for those who are experiencing that, that you would grant to them endurance, steadfastness, Lord, and joy and contentment, even in the midst of uh, feeling really poorly. And um, Lord, we just, uh, again, lift up this morning to you, pray that you would bless it, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, go ahead and pull out your blue God's transformation of man. Oh, no, that's not what we're looking at. The laminated sheet, the laminated sheet. I'm jumping up ahead of myself. In the back under your resources tab, the laminated sheet. And Brandy, we are working on getting more folders. We'll have one for you next semester, week one. Uh, so you'll have, have one all together uh, to work from. 
On this laminated sheet, we have the key events of the Old Testament. And just want to talk through that again. Just put that in front of us. I know last time we were together, we didn't review it. And so going to work through that. Begins with creation on the top left corner. We find that in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. However, man disobeyed God's instruction and there was the fall. Well, this progressed and continued to spread with, throughout the world and in man's heart. And God's assessment of man is that there was only evil continually in the intentions of his heart. And so God brought about judgment through a worldwide catastrophic flood, only preserving Noah and his family. Well, after the flood, God's instruction for Noah and his family was to disperse and spread out and inhabit the land and to be fruitful and multiply. And yet they didn't listen to God's instruction. They gathered together and they sought to make a name for themselves in the Tower of Babel. And God was not pleased with this, so in order to cause them to do what they refused to do, he confounded their languages, and they were dispersed. And yet as this dispersion took place, God made a promise to one man to become a nation to bless all the other nations. Who was that man? Abraham, exactly. And so Abraham was to be a be one who would have many offspring and God would raise up a nation and that nation would bless all the other nations. However, in order to have a nation, you need three ingredients, a people, a constitution, and a land. Well, Abraham's offspring finds themselves in Egypt as Joseph makes his way there and his brothers and father make his way there as well. And eventually they're brought into captivity in Egypt. Over 400 years of captivity in Egypt God grows them to the number of 2 million. They go from 70 to 2 million in 400 years. As they're taken into captivity, they grow and they are brought out of captivity through 10 plagues. That's the lightning bolt with the pin on it, 10 plagues. And this brings about the Exodus in 1446 BC, where the people of Israel cross the Red Sea and now they are considered a people. They have two million people at this point. They come to Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. They're a theocracy. That means they're under the rule of God. They don't have a king at this point. And God gives them a constitution, the law. While Moses is receiving this law, they seek to make a graven image, and they call it Yahweh. So they make the golden calf. They collect everybody's gold and jewelry, and they make a calf, and they call it Yahweh. They actually call this golden calf Yahweh, and God is displeased with this. He's given them specific instruction to not make an image of God as if he were creation. And so he delays them in the wilderness, and they wander for 40 years, and that generation is not to enter into the promised land. And yet that new generation now has opportunity as 40 years have passed to enter into the promised land. So they cross the Jordan. God's instruction is for them to divide and conquer. And they do so. And now they have their land and they're a nation. So they have their people, their constitution, and their land. They're dwelling in the promised land. However, God tells them to occupy the land fully and they disobey. They don't occupy the land fully. They don't extinguish foreign nations that they're called to eliminate, and they also make alliances with nations that they were to drive out. And so during this time, God raises up judges, and they enter into cycles. These cycles include sin, servitude, that's servitude of other nations as they're taken into 
um, uh, as they're, they're taken captive and brought into servitude of other nations. Supplication, that's prayer to God. God saves them, brings them out of that servitude, and then silence. And this cycle repeats over and over again as you make your way through the book of Judges. However, the sinfulness of Israel gets so bad that there's total corruption, particularly among the, among the Levitical priesthood, Eli and his sons. There's just complete corruption at that point. The state of Israel is dire. There's no king, no regard for the ark, no capital, no priesthood, no land, no theocracy. And so what do the people of Israel say? We know what the problem is. We need a king. We need a king like all of the other nations. And they wanted a king with the wrong heart that looked like the other nations. And so they choose for themselves Saul, who had a bad heart. He had no regard for the ark. He was disobedient to God and had a disregard for God's law. So what did God do? God raised up a king after his own heart, which was David. And one of his earliest acts was to go and get the ark of the covenant. He was obedient to God. He had a regard for God's law. And then after David, Solomon comes along. Solomon had a, a divided heart. There were things he did really well in his request for wisdom to rule God's people rightly. And yet there was also instruction, specific instruction that God gave to him to not acquire for himself, for the nation, horses, horses, women, or wives rather, and money. And so while God did bring peace and prosperity to the land in Solomon's disobedience to acquire for the nation horses and wives and money, God brought about judgment through the split of the kingdom. The reason horses, wives, and money were to not be sought after is because the nation of Israel was to depend upon God for their prominence as a nation. Horses would be like uh, an army, tanks, going and getting a whole bunch of military reinforcements to protect yourself. Wives was a way of forming alliances with other nations to bring about peace, but it also brought about a corruption of man's heart as uh, Solomon was influenced by the false worship and false gods of the women that he married. And then money obviously brings about power and ability to dominate and, and exhibit uh, authority over other nations. So the result in 931 BC was a split of the nation of Israel. You have the northern ten tribes referred to at that point as Israel. And then you've got the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, referred to as Judah. Although it is important to notice and to be aware of, of various prophets, particularly the minor prophets, and to whom they're writing. Because Judah will at times still be referred to as Israel. Uh, but the northern tribes of Israel are not referred to as Judah. So it can be a little confusing, especially if you're post-Assyrian captivity. So when the northern tribes are taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 BC, oftentimes at that point, the remaining Judah is referred to as Israel. Um, so it's just something to note as you're reading through those things. Israel had no good kings and eventually was taken into the Assyrian captivity in 722 and they end there, at least at this point. Judah had some good kings, is taken into the Babylonian captivity in 605. However, they have a specific future that they have already realized. <laughs> in Daniel, we see that God is in control of these things, particularly Daniel chapter 9. God's not finished with Israel, that God will provide atonement and there will be a future kingdom. And so while they're in exile in Babylon, God does three things. He cures them of idolatry. Babylon was an incredibly idolatrous nation, incredibly idolatrous. And so it really created a distaste for idols 
in the hearts of the Israelites in captivity. He also grew a greater respect for their law and gave them a hope for a Messiah. And so as they return out of captivity, they return to prepare for the Messiah. And we see the rebuilding of the temple and the establishment of the city walls and uh, uh, emphasis on the purity of the people. And Ezra headed up the rebuilding of the temple. And that's where we see Nehemiah heading up the rebuilding of the wall until Christ would return uh, in his first advent. So those are the key events of the Old Testament I want to hear from you. If you were to start and stop the Pentateuch, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, where would those books fall in this key events chart? Good. Exactly. And then where does Deuteronomy end? Yep, right right after the delay of 40 years and right as they're about to cross the Jordan. Right, so Moses ends, uh, he dies at the end of Deuteronomy, commissioning Joshua to enter into the promised land. So Genesis through Deuteronomy will go from creation to the end of the delay for 40 years, right before they're about to cross the Jordan to enter into the land. And then Joshua picks up, they cross the, the Jordan, they enter into the land, they're called to divide and conquer they don't do it fully. Joshua would end there. And then judges would fit, pick up right at that cycles and go on from there. So we're going to, as we work through these um, key events, we're going to start placing some of those books in this timeline to, to get an understanding of how different books of the Bible fit within the timeline. But that's what we're going to do for this morning. So great job. Go ahead and put that back in your binder. And um, just by way of reminder, most weeks we'll be spending a little bit of time just working through biblical literacy, things like that. And um, we'll expand on that over the coming semesters. But that is that part. Okay. You should be in your outline on semester one, week seven, discipline one, shepherding my heart with the promises of God, part one. We're going to expand on this in the future on additional promises of God. But this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about uh, what we should think about the promises of God, the purpose of God's promises in our lives. How, what should we know about God's promises? And then we're going to look at a few of God's promises and how they bear out implications on our lives. And when we think about discipline one, the call to shepherd our hearts, that is really where everything starts in the Christian life. God transforms us through the work of the gospel. He takes us from that unmixed condition that we talked about in the new man worksheet, the transformation of man worksheet, where we were unmixed, only able to sin, dead in our transgressions and sins. As Romans 5 says, we were godless, helpless sinners. We could not bring glory to God. And we talked about the difference between being able to do something socially, morally good 
does not equal doing something that is pleasing to the Lord. So just because you can do a morally good social act does not mean that you are walking in obedience and submission to God. And so those are two different things. So to say, well, I don't always sin. I did this good thing. I showed love towards somebody else. Well, great. Did you do it to the glory of God? Well, no, I did it out of selfishness and to feel good about myself and to get something in return. And I did it because I'm my own idol and it's how I feel satisfied in the way that I live. Well, it was still sinful before a holy God, even if it was socially kind. Uh, and so it's important to recognize prior to salvation, we are depraved. We are dead in our sins. We cannot please God. And yet when God awakens us, when he grants to us new life, when we're reborn, when we're reconciled to God through the work of Jesus Christ, now we enter into this mixed condition where we are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And we are able to not sin. We're able to glorify God. We have this ability to be able to, to magnify Christ, to live for him, to give glory to his name. And yet in this life, we don't do that perfectly. We're in a mixed condition. We have a new spirit. We are reborn before God, but we live in this flesh that still is sinful and has sinful tendencies. And the call from Romans 6 is to no longer walk as if we were slaves to sin, but as slaves to righteousness, we present our members for righteousness not for sinfulness. And that's a struggle. And that's something that we seek to do diligently and work intentionally towards. And we're to put off the old man and put on the new man as we walk in the fruit of the spirit, and no longer the deeds of the flesh. And these are all parts of the Christian life until one day when we're glorified, when we see Jesus and we're like him. So either when Jesus returns or when we die, then we will once again be in an unmixed condition, but one where we can't sin. So prior to salvation, we could only sin. Today, for those who are in Christ, we're in a mixed condition. We can both glorify God, and yet we still sin. And a day is coming when we will be in an unmixed condition, but opposite from the one before, we will only be able to please God. And that day is wonderful. And so in this mixed condition, there's actually a call from Scripture for us to be intentional about renewing our minds and dwelling on what is glorifying to God and pleasing God in our conduct. And even from Proverbs 4.23, we see the importance of keeping our heart or guarding our heart with all diligence, for from it flows the wellspring of life. And that's the call of Proverbs 4.23 that we would intentionally care for our hearts. And that guarding or that keeping of your heart, it's actually a military term that was used for guards who would stand on a castle wall and look intently to protect and, and guard the city against foreign invaders. And if you think of the kind of intensity of that looking that would be present to protect all those in the city, it was, it was incredibly intentional. And this guarding is like a watchman at night standing, staring into the darkness, looking for any movement, any threat that might arise. That's the kind of guarding that we are to have with our heart. An intentional, vigorous, keeping, guarding, protecting. Because the most important part of who we are is our inner man, who we are at the core level. And so if we are morally cleaned up on the inside, but we have neglect or on the outside, but we have neglected to address our heart, we will have made no ground in bringing glory to God. All we will have done is cultivate a pharisaical, hypocritical life. It has to start with the heart. We have to address our heart. We have to shepherd our hearts. And so as we ponder the promises of God, 
we must understand the importance of shepherding our hearts to renew our minds, to take thoughts captive, to dwell on things above, uh, to, to dwell on that which is pleasing to the Lord. And so how do we grow in our ability to do these things? If you think of Romans 12.1 on the heels, as you've heard me say, the, the most consecutive, comprehensive section of scripture on the gospel, Romans 1 through 11. And Paul gets to chapter 12 and says, therefore, by the mercies of God, that's a summary of, of all that he's explained in the gospel and the glory of God in the gospel. This unsearchable wisdom and glorious ways of God that he talks about at the end of chapter 11 in his beautiful doxology of worship and praise about God. By the mercies of God, present yourselves, present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. So when we talk about shepherding our hearts, it really starts with a battle for the mind. What do we think? What do we believe about ourselves, about God, about his desires for us? And how do we separate our thinking from the world so that it leads to a godly transformation of character that's pleasing to the Lord? How do we grow in our ability to renew our minds and really train our minds to agree with God? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. And as we seek to do, do this, what we're going to see are some things that we must know right off the start to aid us in benefiting from God's promises. God's promises actually have a crucial part in the believer's sanctification. God's promises have a, a critical role in our conformity into Christ's likeness. And so this morning, I want to talk about what must we know about the promises of God. Go ahead and turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to spend just a little bit of, of pre-work time in this passage to help prepare us. Then we will look at the promises of God. But before we look at the promises of God, we need to look at God's intention for us in his promises. So as we, as we seek to apply God's promises to our lives for greater godliness, what must we know about the promises of God? Well, first of all, God's promises are trustworthy. God's promises are trustworthy. And as we dive into these, let's look at uh, 2 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 3 and 4. We're going to expand out from there a little bit as we go. But let's start with verses 3 and 4, and we'll get a little bit of a, of a, a running start starting in verse 2. So 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter says this, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then verse 3, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. What we see here 
first and foremost, that we must understand is that God's promises are trustworthy. God's promises are trustworthy, and God's promises are trustworthy because the source of those promises are God himself, is God himself. God has granted these promises to us. They have come to us. And, and through this, we have the ability to be sanctified in our salvation, to grow in godliness. And so we can have hope and confidence in these promises because they are sourced out of God. Consider Psalm 1830. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. Psalm 1830. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. For the word of the Lord to be tried, that means it has been tested and is true. It is trustworthy. It is reliable. It is dependable. It is unfailing. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? And there's a rhetorical question where the answer is absolutely obvious. Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? And again, a rhetorical question to, to provide emphasis of the trustworthy nature of God. If God has said it, he will do it. It's not like, uh, maybe you've experienced this, where you've asked your husband to do something around the house. And he goes, oh yeah, I'll get to it tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes. And the next day comes. And the next day comes. Or maybe where your husband asks you to do something in the home and you go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll make sure I get to it this week. And that week passes and it slips your mind. We're not trustworthy in the ways that God is trustworthy. Even with good intentions, we sometimes fail. God never, ever fails. He never makes a vain promise. He, he never gives a good intention statement and doesn't follow through. God does not lie. His way is blameless. His words are tried. Titus 1, 1 through 3, Paul says this, Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. God does not lie. God is completely trustworthy. He is completely faithful. And so why should we look at the promises of God? Why should they carry weight in our lives? Why can we have confidence in what God has revealed? Because of the source of those promises, they are God, and he will not lie. Well, what else must we know about the promises of God? First, God's promises are trustworthy because of the source of those promises, which is God. And secondly, we, can, we must understand that God's promises are purposeful. God's promises are purposeful. That should be your second point in your outline. God's promises are purposeful. He has intention in these things. And I want to go back to verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied, and this is in 2 Peter, to you in the knowledge of God and of our and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his, and now when we see a, a pronoun like that, we want to look back, who's the antecedent? Who is that referring to? Well, in this case, it's referring to Jesus our Lord. So seeing that his, that is Jesus our Lord, his divine power, Jesus' divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him, that is Jesus, who called us by his 
that is Jesus' own glory and excellence. For by these, his own glories and excellencies, for by those, that's what the these is on that relative pronoun, he, Jesus, has granted to his, Jesus' people, and magnificent promises. So God has given to us the, the excellencies of his own glory and, and, or I'm sorry, he's given to us, he's shared with us his glory and excellencies, and by those he's granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. These promises are rooted in Christ, and he has purpose in them for us. So that by them, there that so that is a purpose indicator. It's a conjunction that's indicating purpose. Do you see that in verse 4? So after magnificent promises, so that by them, the magnificent promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. God's intention or Jesus' intention in his promises to his people is that we experience a partaking in his divine nature so that we're sanctified so that we're grown in godliness, so that we escape the corruption of the world that's in the world by lust, strong passions. Oftentimes when we hear lust, we just automatically go to sexual immorality, and that definitely falls under the category of lust. But lust is simply just a strong passion. So we escape worldly strong passions through the promises of God. God's promises are purposeful. God intends his promises to have a sanctifying impact in the believer's life. And in light of this, we need to ask ourselves, have we given thought to God's promises in our pursuit of sanctification? When we think about spiritual growth, do we think intentionally about God's promises? Because right here we see clearly that his promises have been given to us as a means for the purpose of greater godliness. The promises of God don't lead us to passivity in our pursuit of holiness, but they give us confidence in our pursuit and in our efforts and in our discipline to be more godly. And I want you to see this. Uh, Look a little bit farther in verse 5. Now, for this very reason, also applying all diligence. So Peter's conclusion to the promises of God that have been given through Jesus' divine power being granted to us to be able to navigate life in godliness, is that in light of these things, apply all diligence. He doesn't say, in light of these things, be passive and let go and let God. He doesn't say, take a back seat, God's the front driver in your sanctification. No, he says, in light of these things, in light of the promises of God, in light of divine power being granted to you through Jesus, apply all diligence. Be intentional. Work hard. And apply all diligence in what? In your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. In your knowledge, self-control. In your self-control, perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. In your godliness, brotherly kindness. In your brotherly kindness, love. So God's promises are purposeful. He has intention in them to conform us more and more into Christ's likeness. And then thirdly, God's promises are to be prized. God's promises are to be prized. And I just read through verse 
7. And I want to keep going a little bit farther as we look at the importance and the benefit of God's promises on the believer's life. For if these qualities that he just listed, those various virtues, are yours and are increasing, that means you're growing in them, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as you grow in these things, you find greater usefulness for Christ. And conversely, if you neglect these things, if you have a disregard for God's promises, if you don't pursue godliness, you will inevitably find yourself useless for God's purposes. And that's a sobering reality. Then verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. It just, it's just wrong. It doesn't make sense for one who's in Christ to neglect these things. To be content to have Jesus as your Savior and not live with him as your Lord is counter-Christian. It's not what it means to be a Christian. You forgot critical realities if you are content to experience forgiveness of sins and you are lax in your pursuit of godliness in response to that. You're short-sighted. You're blind. You forgot the purification from your former sins. Again, in light of these realities, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent. Be all the more diligent. And so again, these indicative realities, these truths about God, these truths about what he's done, the, the call to grow in godliness, it should lead us to diligence. And again, all the more diligence to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in, the, in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Peter is not saying get busy at these things so that you can gain your salvation. What he's actually saying is get busy at these things because they are expressions of genuine salvation. Live out what the Lord has given you faithfully, not to assuage God's wrath, not to please the Lord in a salvific manner, but in response to his greatness in response to his work in the gospel, in response to his desire in accordance with his gospel work to conform his children into his likeness, apply all diligence. And so these promises are to be prized. And this is true for all of God's word, even considering Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. The precious reality of God's word for the believer cannot be neglected. It can't be diminished. God's word is to be prized and his promises are to be prized because through them, he makes us more and more like our savior. And if our hearts are truly in love with Jesus, we will want to obey him. If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And so out of love for God, out of a, a love for Christ, we should treasure and prize his commandments that he has given to us. So with those things in mind, I want to transition a little bit and talk about God's promises specifically for the believer. Before I do that, any questions? Okay, so we should be on the next page. God's promise 
promises for the believers. And one last thing before we jump into the promises that's really important. Excuse me. One, one consideration is that you must know your context when reading your Bible. We're going to talk about the promises of God. And the promises that we're going to be looking at are promises of God for the New Testament Christian. Not every promise in the Bible is for you. If I promise Julie that I'm going to take out the garbage tomorrow, that is not a promise for all of you that I'm going to take out your garbage tomorrow. Okay? Well, for some reason, sometimes we feel a liberty with God's word where we read a promise from God to a specific people and we want to apply that promise as if it was made to us. And this is what's called, this is a hermeneutical issue. Hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics is how you interpret and understand your Bible. And so it's important when looking at God's word to understand the context of what's taking place and to understand who's making this promise. Okay, it's God. To whom is he making this promise? And I've ruined many people's life verses, bringing up the fact of uh, an oftentimes misapplied passage in Jeremiah 29, 11. You know it. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. And very sweet, godly, Jesus-loving Christians find a lot of hope in that passage going, Jesus has plans for me, a future hope and not calamity. And so this hardship that I'm going through, God's going to bring it to pass. And yet in their good intentions, they miss the fact that that promise isn't for the New Testament believer. It's for Israel, who's been told that they're going to have a future land where a Messiah will rule, where there will be peace and prosperity and they rebelled against God. And so God brought about judgment and discipline. And in Daniel, he actually says that the chastisement is to do for them, to remove their heart of stone and do for them what they would not do for themselves so that they might be sanctified. So they might humble themselves before God. And so in Jeremiah, in the midst of complete calamity for the nation of Israel, God is giving comfort to a disciplined, heart-aching people who are wondering, have we totally been disconnected from the promises of God? And God says, there's judgment that you're experiencing, but there is a future hope coming. God knows the plans for them, and it's not for calamity, but it's one of a future and, and a hope. It's welfare. And so is that passage then not meaningful or not useful? Well, absolutely not. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, teaching, rebuking, training, correcting, and righteousness so that the man of God may be uh, adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. So just because a promise from scripture is not specifically for you, it doesn't mean that that passage is not useful for you. What do we see about the character of God in that passage? He is faithful. He fulfills his promises. In dire circumstances, he still has plans. God will be true to his word. And there's much more that we could glean from that passage as well. So as we think through passages and we think through various verses where God has promises that he's given, it's important that we understand to whom those promises are being 
given. So with that in mind, um, we're going to jump in and <laughs> look at a few of these passages. Turn to Romans 8. This is a passage I'm sure that you're familiar with and yet has monumental implications for the believer as they, various, as they face life's various circumstances, whether it's intense sorrows, intense trials, intense hardships, intense difficulties, intense joys, intense betrayals, whatever, whatever you might be going through, there is a, a statement, a truth, a reality that holds firm. It's just true. It can't be discredited. It can't be argued against. It is a reality. So look with me at Romans 8, 28. Paul says, and we know, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And then keep reading a little bit. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are realities. God did this. God did this. God did this. And while we have not been glorified yet, the certainty of that glorification is complete. So Paul is so certain of God's accomplishments in the gospel that he talks about our future glorification as if it's a past reality. How amazing is that? And then verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And here we see the reality, two, two wonderful truths that God is working all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purposes, and God will freely give us all that we need to glorify him, to please him, to navigate life's trials and hardships and temptations, to, to overcome sin and temptation. And if he was willing to go to the extent of not sparing his own son to bring us to salvation, that's the extreme, that's the pinnacle how much more can we have confidence that he'll give to us all things? And that's all things that we need to be able to honor and glorify him and live for him. To be able to navigate this world in a way that's pleasing to him. And Paul goes on to talk about the immense love of God. That nothing can separate us from this wondrous love of God. And so when we think about this reality that God causes all things to work together for good, think of the comfort that comes into your life knowing the character of God, knowing this promise, knowing this reality and this truth. It's like Joseph at the end of Genesis, who had been sold into slavery, falsely accused of wickedness, all of these trials, imprisoned for years, and his brothers come to him and seek his forgiveness, and he says, you meant it for good, and oftentimes people misquote this verse. They say, you meant it for good, but God, or you meant it for evil, but God used it for good. That's not what it says. It uses the same word. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. God in his sovereign divine providence uses intentionally and intends even evil acts so that they are for his purposes. This is both a sobering and precious reality. 
And so what would it look like to shepherd your heart with the promise that God is using all things for good and that the one who did not spare his own son but delivered him over freely, how much more will he give you all things? Well, when you're tempted towards discontentment and you're letting yourself settle into being disgruntled with your circumstances, what does that reveal? Well, it ultimately reveals a lack of faith. That you don't believe that God is using this for good. You're questioning God's character. And so to shepherd your heart is to remember God is using this for good. And so I trust him. God's wisdom is on display in this moment. And what does it mean for God to be wise? It means that he chooses the best possible means to bring about the best possible end. Not only is God choosing the right end goal, but the path to get there is always the best path to get there. That's God's wisdom. And so not only is God wise, but he's also sovereign or supremely powerful. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. And so not only does God have wisdom, but he has the divine power to execute his perfect plan. Think about the implications on our life practically if we believe this. When you find yourself at the end of your rope, disheartened, discouraged, grumpy, <laughs> discontent, dissatisfied. It would be, my day would have been, it was a rough day. It would have been so much better if these people had done this or this circumstance had gone this way. In that moment, you are declaring in your discontentment that your ways are better than God's. Ouch. <laughs> We've all been there. And yet to renew our minds in the midst of those hardships, in the midst of those temptations, in the midst of those very real trials and temptations and difficulties, to remind ourselves, God is using this. God is intending something in this. There's something to be done in me through this. God, don't let me squander what you would want to do in me and through me in this moment by my hard-heartedness and lack of faith in your trustworthiness. You tell me, you promise you're using this for good. Help me to maximize the good that you would want to do in me and through me in this moment. That's what it looks like to shepherd your heart. And this is where it's crucial to understand that shepherding our hearts is more than a 30-minute quiet time in the morning. But our intentionality to bring our hearts to God's word actually brings about a mind renewal that when we face life's various difficulties and temptations, truth is on our mind. Truth is resonating in our heart. It doesn't take long to, to pull the cords of our hearts to get them back stabilized on God's word. God, you're trustworthy. Your promises are certain. You're faithful. You're using this for good. Navigating life's various circumstances. God is using all circumstances to make us more like Christ. And there is no instance where the difficulty of the circumstance and the hardship outweighs the benefit that God would want to bring in your life. What do I mean by that? There's no instance where it's not worth it. Whatever the hurt, whatever the pain, whatever the hardship, whatever the sorrows, whatever the exertion of discipline to grow is required, it's always worth it if it leads to more godliness. Well, what else? 
shepherding our heart through anxiety, turn to Luke chapter 12. This is not a popular topic in our culture, and it is a necessary one. Luke chapter 12, Jesus addresses the issue of worry or the issue of anxiety. And in verse 22, Jesus says to his disciples, for this, very, for this reason, so this is Luke 12 verse 22, and he said, that's Jesus, to his disciples, for this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry as to what you will eat, nor for your body as to what you will put on. And here we see the command to not worry or to not be anxious, to not have an unsettled inner disposition that is discontent or worried or dwelling on the uncertainty of tomorrow. Don't worry. And oftentimes our culture wants to say that you're a victim of your emotions or that worrying is a, a natural expression. It helps guard us and all sorts of different things. But Jesus tells us to not to, and so to do it is a sin. We are to not worry. And what Jesus is getting after is basic provisions of life. He says for your body as to what you'll put on it or what you'll, or for, for food and what you'll eat. And then verse 23, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life's span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all, in, in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow, is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? And so there we see the promise of God's faithfulness to provide what we need. And then we see the heart of the issue in verse 28 at the end. You men of little faith. You men of little faith. To worry is to lack faith. To doubt God's faithfulness and provisions is an issue of faith, of not believing God and not believing in his character and not believing in his trustworthiness. Verse 29, do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And here we see the reality that to worry is to be worldly. That's what the world does. And yet for the believer who knows God and knows his character and knows his goodness and knows his provision, and one who truly believes these things will put off worry, will put off anxiety. Philippians 4, 7 and 8 tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thankfulness, present your requests to God. It's not that we don't think about these things or don't plan or don't consider, but we certainly don't dwell and we certainly don't think we know better. When we find ourselves experiencing worry and discontentment and anxiety, it's an expression of lack of faith in God, a lack of trust in his character. God, I don't believe that you're going to supply what I need in this certain circumstance. And yet the reality is, is that God knows better what we need. 
How many times have your children asked for something? I need this, mom. No, you don't need this. What you actually need is fill in the blank. Well, how much more does God in his infinite wisdom know what we need? Our responsibility isn't to pursue and worry and concern ourselves with temporal issues, but to concern ourselves with things pertaining to salvation, his work, the kingdom of heaven, what he has done for us in the gospel, to pursue diligently godliness, to be faithful. What does faithfulness look like today? And so shepherding your heart through anxiety, remember God's trustworthy nature. He knows what we need better than we do. Know his provisions. He'll give us what we need. He's trustworthy. Pray for faith. God, right now, I am experiencing anxiety, and I recognize that this worry is a lack of faith and trust in you. And so, Lord, help me. I believe. Help me in my unbelief. (laughs) Give me what I need. Help me to trust you that your ways are wise. Here's what I'd like, but you know better. So whatever you bring, help me to be content in it. Well, a few others as we wrap up this morning. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The reality that no temptation has seized you, but what is common to man and with the temptation is the way of escape. What a wonderful truth when fighting sin. There is never a moment for the believer where you are unable to take the path of holiness. You're never a helpless victim to your circumstances that cause you to sin. God has provided a way of escape. And so as you shepherd your heart with this promise, when you're facing temptation, I I just want to yell at my kids. I'm so angry. Okay, Lord, there is a way of escape of this anger. Help me to take it. Help me to put this to death. Help me me to be peaceable. Help me to be patient with all. Help me to shepherd my children well in this moment. When you find yourself impatient with your husband or discontent or wanting something else or jealous or tempted to gossip or tempted to slander or whatever the temptation may be, whatever it might be, There is always a way of escape that the Lord has provided. What a comfort. You're never backed into the corner to sin only. Also, as we looked at several weeks ago, Philippians 1, 6, that God is faithful and the one who started this work will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Your growth, if you are in Christ, is certain. Have you ever felt disheartened in your battle against sin? I keep trying and I keep fighting the same old battle. I just want to give up. Don't. (laughs) You don't need to. God's faithful. Keep day after day in the fight. First Peter tells us that our flesh wages war against us. Ephesians 6 tells us to put on the full armor of God. We can have confidence in our obedience to these passages, knowing that our battles are not in vain. God will be faithful. And lastly, the believers secured future glorification. Battle now with the hope that one day we will battle no more. Turn to Philippians. We'll close with this. We'll probably be here in a couple years, the end of chapter 3. Just joking. 
chapter 3, verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Oh, well, that's Ephesians. That's a really good verse too. Philippians 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, and that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. That's a promise. That is a promise. By the exertion of the power that he has, even to subject all things to himself. There is a day when all the struggles for holiness, for all of the seeking to put to death the deeds of the flesh, for all the striving for godliness will be done away with. What a precious truth that one day we will be glorified. And Paul actually, just before this passage, talks about striving and laboring to attain to the resurrection. Paul, in his understanding of future glorification, led him, it motivated him to get as close to that future glorification that's coming in this life as possible. It didn't make him go, one day I won't struggle, so what's the worth in, what's the worth in trying? No, one day I'll be glorified. I want to get as close to that day now as possible through godly living. And he strives for that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning that we could be together. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for these promises that are so precious. They are to be prized. They are purposeful and they are reliable. They are trustworthy because they come from you. And you are so faithful. Lord, I pray that we would spend our lifetime renewing our minds and learning and growing in our understanding of your character and of your promises and of your instruction that we would be like paul says conformed more and more to your likeness nearer and nearer to the day when we will be glorified forever with you enjoying you perfectly sinning against you no more we long for that day until that day help us to grow and we pray all these things in jesus name amen Absolutely.